Blake Shields Abramovitz. How's it going, man? Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the program. Happy to do it. I'm super pumped for the convo. Grateful to Michael Holt for introducing us. Yeah, Michael Holt. The dangerous, the saintly. Yeah. The savage and the saint. Exactly. I know. Yeah, he's an amazing person. He is, and he was also episode 700, which was so beautiful. Yeah, we talked so much about spirituality and well-being and masculinity. It was just... Mm. Oh, nice. Oh, so a... your audience is familiar with him. Yeah. I thought I would have to make a make an introduction for people who don't know who we're talking about. He's a meditator extraordinaire, but even before he started meditating, he's been like a... A lethal weapon, proficient in yes, like three different martial arts and yes. But he's he's civilized himself, whereas he used to be kind of a, you know, kind of a little. And he'll say this himself. I'm not talking shit. A wild man. He was a you know yep. he 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 was a, uh, you know he 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 liked to fight. And yep. so now what he teaches is is sort of this this civilizing process of. You know, being a savage who, in some sense, wants to fight, who's in touch with that primal part of himself, but at the same time holds it at bay. Um, yeah. And there's this beautiful balance. Exactly. Yeah. There's the wisdom that yeah, balances exactly. it out. Yeah. And then also, both of you have been profoundly influenced by George Haas. Yeah. And that's been interesting and we're excited to have him on the show soon yeah that's so cool in la we're pumped for that and we'll unpack a lot of the the art the acting the spirituality of your journey and i'm super excited for that so and also for those that are interested in diving deeper in Blake has been teaching yoga and meditation. He's acted in dozens of principal roles, sponged up the planetary mystic traditions, and is producing The Arsonist of Venice, a full-length dramatic play about a brilliant novelist who is planning a murder. And you can find all of his links in the bio below to veniceyogi.com. Also, his IMDb page, his Instagram, his Wikipedia page. You can go and look him up in greater detail and follow him. Blake. Let's start things off with the macro level chronology. You were teaching me a bit about the journey of having sort of the counterculture style parents mm -hmm. that were seeking the perfect geographic location and you had three other siblings and you were from yeah, New York, New Jersey, to Israel, to Boise, and then to this L.A. acting, spirituality, art vibe. So mm -hmm. well, take us through that story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so um, I was born in uh, New York State, and, and like, like you just mentioned, my parents were um, pretty wild characters i mean these are uh children of the 60s in the truest sense uh, they were um how I, what did i call them uh, rebel outlaws uh truly i mean really uh in in ways that are both 
fun and interesting and also quite harrowing, which, you know, we can get into. But it's, it's, um, it's meaningful to me to understand myself and the way I turned out in the context, this larger context that's not only to do with them as individual human beings, but the whole cultural explosion of the 60s and all of the forces that were coming together or colliding at that moment. Um, so that's definitely in my cells. <laughs> Uh, and so when I was born, they were living on a farm, you know, they decided to clean up their act and, uh, move to a farm and were running a 50 head, uh, dairy farm in, in upstate New York. And that's, that's where, that's what was going on when I was born. I think they thought it was going to be like a, like an early Disney film, but, uh, it turned out that it was back breaking and yeah. just, uh, you know, soul-destroying work year after year. Um, so my brother and I were born there on the farm. They lost the farm when I was two and drove down to New Jersey with literally nothing, uh, just the clothes on their back. I think my dad said he had a hundred dollars and um, some stuff in the car, whatever could fit in the hatchback or whatever it was. And then, um, this is what they would do. They would just drive into a town and say, oh, this looks nice, and then just move there, just stay there. So this was uh, <laughs> uh, a town called Cape May in New Jersey, which was a resort town, and they just got jobs as waiters, um, waiter and waitress. And my sister was born there, and then the they decided they didn't like it because it emptied out except in the summer they they drove there in the summer so it must have been the summer of 79 and my sister would have been born that september by which point uh the place had just emptied out <laughs> and so they said all right well let's get out of here and then my mother's family lived in california so she thought well let's move closer to my family but not too close <laughs> yeah because they're you know they had their whole set of problems going on there mm -hmm. so we moved to santa cruz or just outside santa cruz tiny town boulder creek redwood town mm -hmm. seven redwoods in the yard mm -hmm. yeah so big chunk of my childhood there three years and beautiful memories there well, I come from, from, well, trauma, uh, the vi violence in my family. There, it was not a, a pretty upbringing. Um, you know, that's I sort of alluded to the, the dark side of that '60s thing. Uh, you know, my, uh, there was, uh, you know, there were. It was a rocky childhood. So as interesting and fun as it was and as fascinating as my parents were there's this other aspect which i feel like i would be remiss not to touch on because it bears on my whole spiritual journey and on the kind of art i make and stuff like that so in a sense it's kind of the balance or the synthesis between the hyper liberal with a slight conservative in a mm. sense mm. you want to take the best of both yeah. Mm -hmm. And if you're hyper in either direction by itself, mm. oh, that can be extreme. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, 
you know, both of my parents had difficult childhoods themselves, and they had, um, they, when you combine that with the kind of cultural explosion, implosion that they underwent, each in their own ways, that, that, that they were a part of these major um, culture wars and breakages in the culture in the 60s, I think that's a very uh, potent set of um, traumas and losses for them, which played out, of course, in my childhood in a big way. Um, so anyway... Uh, that's in itself such a fascinating part of the United States history and the way that it affected like your parents that then ended up passing along to you in a sense the denuclearization of the family unit to mm. this sort of hyper openness of the psychedelic entheogenic phenomena that mm -hmm. was emerging is both extremely beautiful and at the same time it can make it so that potentially that slight bit of conservatism gets completely blown away so mm -hmm. the traditions are completely lost mm -hmm. as well or like the wisdoms from even like the founding fathers at the constitutional days the mm -hmm. declaration of independence days can be completely lost so that's the balance of those two in one that is the optimal sort of sorting algorithm, if you will, where you drain the dirty bathwater from like the left and the right, mm -hmm. but you take the beautiful baby out of both sides and then merge it together into yeah. one. Yeah, and that was such a hard thing to do at that time because in the 60s, I mean, you know, it's like what's good about about Jim Crow? What's good about... uh deep structural you know ambient racism and my, and my mother was truly a hero she was on the front lines of this civil rights act in the early 60s before the voting rights act and she you know she marched with a student nonviolent coordinating committee and um, uh, congress on racial equality I mean she was there yeah and wow so, but she took it seriously. She believed in the principles of equality and uh, tolerance and we're all one people. Humanity is not, you know. Not uh, two. It's one. Yeah. yeah. And so she fell in love with a, a black activist mm -hmm. and brought him home yep. to her wealthy uh, wasp parents in La Cañada and it did not go over well. Yeah, and um, just explain what the acronym means. A to WASP, you. a yeah. white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's just, it's kind of a, it has a kind of ironic, um, yeah, tinge to it whenever you, uh, whenever you say WASP, like because you know because I think there's so much privilege that um, that that is associated with that group, um, but. How'd that go for her? It was, yeah. uh, you know, a <laughs> devastating event for her family. Know, for her, um, they, they, um, I think the 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 memorable quote was, "Get that 
N-word out of this house. Jeez. And she refused to stop seeing him and they they had him they had her involuntarily uh committed to a mental institution. Uh tricked her into flying out to Connecticut and then Wow. Uh, and so you know, if wow. you can imagine the the you know, the level of wounding that that would um due to a person yeah and you know getting passed on in familial lineage yeah yeah yeah. yeah. so this is what i mean by like transgenerational trauma that is a function not just of family dynamics but of cultural Cultural. forces at, at, at a scale that's even it's it's hard to even um comprehend it it's so big uh you know so slavery was totally fine until uh 1830s i think was the first time anyone ever came up with the serious idea of banning it and making it illegal everybody thought it was fine until then i think the abolition movement started in the netherlands and in england maybe 50 years before that but before that it had never occurred to anybody that this was a problem mm-hmm. <laughs> and so this is only uh 1830s england bans slavery across its empire it's only 130 years later still the the um the repercussions are reverberating as they still are uh yeah that my mom gets hit with this yeah, you know no kidding so it's this this meaning making to try to see greater and greater context to understand how i ended up <laughs> the way i did exactly. i find very helpful yeah yeah so that aspect of the familial lineage transgenerationally now through you has been massive and in a sense one of the key roles of the most youthful generation is to stop the trauma in the familial lineage and even science is proving that with epigenetics these Mm. these dna methylation and histone tales where you can literally create a stoppage of the perpetuation of things like cortisol hormone stressing or freaking out with anger because as we're going to talk about in spirituality we master the ability to of to dump water in a sense on the flame roots of the monkey mind that is always moving towards craving or aversion or is reacting right away but rather we create that pause that gap That's what sort of enables Mm -hmm. us to be at peace or in a state of happiness that then we can more equanimously, more meditatively, more wisely and gracefully engage. And so that's sort of what the youthful consciousness does in these ways. So Mm -hmm. what then transpires? Because I know there's, you know, the migration to Israel. Yeah. So at a certain point, uh, we were living in California and my mother had decided that she was going to become Jewish like my dad. And I think they thought that would be good for the marriage. And my mother was really interested in religions. I think she was pretty much every religion that you can think of at some point during my upbringing. I'm literally, I mean, she, she was a practicing 
born again Christian, then she was Jewish, then she was Universalist Unitarian, then she was Baha'i, then she was, although I might have gotten those backwards, then she was um, Hare Krishna, etc. So yeah. I was, a, she was even in a New Age cult for a while. Yeah. So anyway, she um, decided that she wanted to be Jewish, and so we started being like a practicing Jewish family at home. And then eventually she put a picture of Jerusalem on the fridge and decided that this would be the next thing. Uh -huh. We were talking about the geographical cure, how a certain kind of person thinks that happiness, fulfillment, freedom is right over the, yep. right around the next bend in the highway. And for her, and then she got my dad on board. That was Jerusalem to raise their kids in the Holy land. And, and so they, Look, they flew four kids out to yeah. Jerusalem, and we we lived there for five years. Um, which so from the time I was seven until I was twelve, we were in Israel, and of course a lot of amazing experiences and friends there. And then we came back because my parents didn't want us to serve in the military because of what was going on there politically. It was. It was already pretty ugly yep. in 89. So we moved back. Why Boise, Idaho? Um, so my dad was playing the piano in the lounge of the King George Hotel in downtown Jerusalem. So cool. Yeah, and that was his gig. And he would ask people that came in once they decided to, to move away. Um, the system, his version of Google, of checking out the world in mm. 1989, mm -hmm. was to ask people that came to the hotel where they were from yes. and what it was like there. Exactly. And yeah. Exactly. And we can still do that today mm -hmm. in 2021 and beyond when we just simply sit down in a ride share to just ask mm -hmm. the person that's driving the vehicle about their life story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Totally. It's a Google. I like how you said that that's what your dad was. Yeah. It's so it funny. Was, it was, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, and you'd get a lot of information that that's way. Right. That's um, right. And my dad's charming and personable. So, excuse me. He would get people talking and they wanted to go someplace that was English speaking. They wanted to go someplace that had natural beauty. So those were the criteria they couldn't get into new zealand because of the immigration laws my dad was already too old or something so it was down to england or the states but they didn't want to do england because it's so expensive in london and they didn't want to live in the sticks so anyway so it got whittled down to um the states and these people would come into the hotel and say well, you know, he'd say, so what's it like in Phoenix, right? Yeah. And that. It'd be like hot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's actually funny that you say that because my dad said this guy, this sort of like big, tough, like uh, Phoenix guy went on for 20 minutes without pausing about how wonderful Phoenix was and how great it was and everything was great about it. And then when he finally left her a moment to interject, his wife said, it's too hot, Harry. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's good. Like 110 degrees there in the yeah. middle of the night. 
Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so they found uh, Boise and Portland and Seattle. I think those were the cities they whittled it down to, and then which align more with the spiritual. I think. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, eventually, Boise, Idaho. Yeah. Um, the guy who told my dad about Boise in Jerusalem was a kind of cowboy, a rancher from Boise. And he said, Boise's a beautiful city, but there's a lot of simple people there. Mm-hmm. And my dad didn't know what he meant. Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> we yeah. moved to Boise and we, yeah. we found out what simple people were. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's just, you know, it's not a polite term, but that was his way of saying. Yeah. Redneck. Basically, in a sense, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, country folk, more, more Portland and Seattle on the spiritual, yeah, 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 Bo- yeah. yeah. Boise has a tinge of like Montana and mm-hmm. Wyoming, yeah, Wyoming, and yeah, and, yeah. And then yeah, you're from Dakota, even, right? Yeah, so yeah, you, yeah, yeah, exactly. So the Dakotas and mm-hmm. Nebraska and mm-hmm. Can- Kansas, and you know, yeah, we, yeah exactly. It, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, so then that was. Six years in yeah. Boise. Yeah. So I spent junior high and high school in Boise. I went to Boise High. I got into acting there. and Cool. That's where I developed my interest in all this kind of spiritual stuff that's ultimately turned into a real path for me. And um, But I came out to L.A. after high school. To Knowing be, that you wanted to pursue this acting and art. Um yeah, I mean, at the very least, I was going to go to school for it. Exactly. And what is the three-year... It was at the California or the... The, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. The American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Yeah, okay. it was in Pasadena when I went, but now it's it's in Hollywood on, on La Brea. Okay. And is that also acronymed as AADA? Yeah. Yeah, okay. or ADA. People or ADA. Call it. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. But by the time I got to the Academy, I was... I was really a mess. Um, I was, uh, I had a really difficult time in high school. I was really depressed and I was dropping acid about once a month for about two years. Wow. During high school? Mm-hmm. Once Which, a month for two years? Yeah. I think I did it about 20 times over the course of my junior and senior year. Wow. And it pretty much bottomed me. I mean, I, I was a, what they call a permafry case at yeah. 17, where I just basically never recovered from this last acid trip that I had. And um, it well, took years. Were you doing that because there was the depression and the escapism? Is that what? Or was it also a kind of a calling towards understanding the nature of reality at a deeper level than physicalism. I mean, I think I wanted to, um, I think there, there was, there was a, a kind of more than just escapism going on. I think I was ex- trying to explore consciousness and I think that I sensed that there was an avenue for healing and psychological cool. integration possible through these substances, but it was all just 
groping and flailing in the dark. I had no tools, no guidance, yes. no context, no conceptual framework for what I was doing. Yes, yes. And it was extremely dangerous, and I, I paid a heavy price for it. But also, it really did plant the seed for... Um, for the future. For my too. meditation practice, which... That's pretty cool. Maybe about 15 years later became quite serious yes. what what does perma fry mean in the yeah yeah like permanently fried but how <laughs> but how if you it's permanently fried how would there even be the interest in ada and you know going to california yeah you know what i mean perma fry mm -hmm. seems like oh that's it like this is like couch potato or something right yeah yeah i mean i was um I, after about two months after that particular experience, which was very, very profound, very beautiful, but also really, really jarring and shattering, uh, I was able to function uh, reasonably well. I could go to school. Um, I could complete assignments. But there was about two months there where I couldn't do anything like that. As in, were you going to school or were you staying at home? I dropped out of high school at that point. Wow. And then I eventually went back to uh, the alternative school. Wow. Uh, sort of the, uh, you know, like basically like a special needs school. And I mean, I'm, you know, I'm like smart person, well read. I, you know, I, I but that's where I landed because I was so, wow. um, you know. Um, so were any of your other siblings sing around with LSD or no, no. no, it was just you on the entheogens. Yeah. That's so interesting. Wow. Yeah. I wouldn't recommend, uh, the combination of a traumatic, um, attachment history, uh, <laughs> unprocessed, unresolved childhood trauma and, uh, unguided, unsupervised psychedelic experimentation at that age. That's not a good recipe. Yeah, there are entheogens done with wisdom, and there yeah. are entheogens done which, in a sense, provided the treasure on the other side of the trauma, which was the, like you described, sort of the frameworks and protocols that enabled this depth of the mm -hmm. spiritual practice that exists today. Yeah. Eventually I came back to yeah. that territory, but in a much more integrative, sustainable way. Yeah. Through meditation and yoga and, and therapy and yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when you moved out here, you had done enough acting in high school where you knew that this was something that you wanted to pursue this three years at ADA. Mm -hmm. And then you're picking up all these tips, tricks, techniques that enhance your ability to basically get noticed by the casting and for them to, even for your, in a sense, your agents, and your managers to really like you and to feel like you have the ability to be somebody that they want to take on as a client. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, I mean, I got, I was really lucky and it was just, I was just sort of a charmed story at that point. I, the, um, 
the American Academy put on a showcase for us, uh, third-year students, where they they literally did the work for us of inviting industry, so casting directors, directors, um, agents, producers, managers to the show, and I did my scene, and I got I got calls. You know, I had like three people call me and wanted to talk about representing me. I mean, it was like, I don't think it's that easy these days. Um, I got, I was lucky. And so I got an agent straight out of school and uh, started auditioning pretty much right away. And and um, I was working within less than a year, uh, which is also unusual. And uh, so I had a whole career in Hollywood. I mean, it's still ongoing, but it's certainly, uh, you know, I had a 10-year period where I was working a lot, and I was on the, uh, you know, I was on that very short list of actors that were getting called in for, you know, high, high-level high TV stuff. Um, I haven't given up, but, uh, you know, the, my booking um, is, you know, it's, it, uh, my booking rate has not been uh, the same for a few years, but we're, you know, we're still plugging away, you know, Hollywood has a way of, um, you know, ups and downs, they told me when I was a kid, and I was like, not for me, it's gonna be a straight shot all the way to the, you know, to the top of the mountain and never look back, but that's not how it worked out, but when... I stopped working as much as I had been about uh, nine years ago. Uh, I refocused energy into um, meditation and yoga in a bigger way, and so in a way, it was. In a way, it was good. It was good that uh, things changed in that respect. Uh, it it created a space for me to pursue other things more seriously and now I'm I'm writing a lot I'm writing plays and producing them with friends and um, that feels extremely meaningful Um, that's really where art and spirituality intersect I think in what I'm writing Uh, not that I'm writing about you know Spirituality, I'm not, uh, but I'm writing about the human heart uh, the best I know how and trying to illuminate it, especially in respect to trauma and loss, which is, I think, what meditation does. Uh, it illuminates the dark. Um, that's what, for, for me, that's the, yep. the overlap, uh, the Venn diagram of art and spiritual practice. Um, they're both trying to illuminate the spaces in our minds and hearts that mm, often prefer to avoid. Yeah. Yeah. That's a beautiful understanding of the peak capacity for both art and spirituality is to heal and also to pierce the veilless veil in understanding our true nature and the 
what we were just looking at here, which mm. is the television and film sort of record, is crazy. There's been like a big, <laughs> big history. And like you said, over time, it's ups and downs. And yeah. it's, you know, you have a lot of different unique roles that you take on across these projects, but that the the role is in itself, you would say you do specifically drama you versus comedy. Um, yeah, I, yeah, that's what I've tended to do. I mean, I... I I like a certain kind of comedy um, that's odd and off the beaten track and uh, like you know indie comedy type vibe. Mm-hmm. I th- I I'm good at and I, I my personality lends itself well to that. But I yeah I can't really do. I mean I can. I shouldn't say I can't, but I I don't like sitcom type. Yeah stuff I, I, I like watching it sometimes but sure. there's just not the kind of instrument that i have exactly uh, it's not the instrument of the unit it's not the yeah. expression of the unit it's yeah. more on the drama yeah. yeah um and i tend to play really dark characters yeah correct yes yes and so um yet at the same time the spiritual practice has been yeah. anchoring light in throughout so maybe walk us through kind of how the spiritual practice evolved simultaneously as the art and acting. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, um, I started working quite a bit, and after my big acid experience my senior year in high school, I didn't touch drugs or alcohol for at all for eight years. Yep. And... So that was, a, I guess, a slow process of incubation and healing for me, that period. Slow. I mean, I was shell-shocked, you know. Yeah, at, yeah. Coming out of that childhood uh, and that drug history, uh, it, I barely limped out into the world. <laughs> yeah, barely limped out. As, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and so... So that's why the abstinence for eight years. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. it was necessary. Totally, totally. And then when I was about 25, three things happened all at once. I started working a lot and making a lot more money. I, st- I decided to get really into yoga and started taking classes and doing trainings. And, and I started partying. So all three of those things happened at once. At once, yeah. That's quite interesting. It was just, yeah, so it was a real kind of a time of like opening and expansion for me. Um, and I, you know, from the time I was 25, 26, I got more and more into yoga and more and more and more into meditation. And at the same time, I was partying and spending all the money I was making. Yeah. Uh, and so it was... a it's hard to understand even for me exactly how I was able to do all of those things. Um, cause I was, I was working more and more. Um, but eventually I decided that yoga and meditation were probably a better bet, uh, than partying, yeah. which was somewhat like exploring consciousness, but also eventually it just became like pure hedonism. Um, and also, it got pretty dark at times, um, as tends to happen with certain kinds of drugs. Um, but when I, I remember when I was 30, 
33 or 34, I had done a few Vipassana retreats, three or so, and I remember thinking, I just, I want to go to bed on time so that I can wake up in the morning and meditate. Mm. That's what I care about. Interesting. And so yeah. I was just so passionate about the meditation. I was so interested in it. And it had been a lifelong interest since I was a teenager. I just decided to um, forego the the party. And for a long time, I was, uh, I mean, really rigorous, really disciplined on and off retreat for a long time. And I'm still on this journey, but I don't know. I think maybe my practice isn't a, a mellower phase. But yeah, yeah. But anyway. Um, so 28 total Vipassana meditation retreats which is nuts yeah yeah, anywhere ranging from a week to 30 days yeah Yeah. a week to a month i did one month long in february of 2016 wow yeah that's really getting at those roots yeah that was um that was a very deep experience there's there's all of a sudden blake shields has disappeared (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. literally in a sense. <laughs> yeah, blown out nirvana. Yeah, I mean, I... Yeah, I was really grateful for my teachers. They gave me a way to unpack and interpret my experiences in meditation in a, in a manner that felt grounded, um, yes. that felt yes. um, tethered to the earth at the same time as it was in that quote blown out it's also tethered to the earth which is the perfect balance yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so i'm grateful to george haas for that and shinzen young and also my my yoga teacher and friend julian walker who you should have him on this show sometime he is fascinating yeah Yeah. any recommendation from you we would love to have on julian walker yeah all right. Fascinating. Invitation. Intellectual. Yeah. And practitioner. L- local by mm-hmm. chance? Yes. Oh, perfect. Like a, oh, yeah. perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. I'll note that and we'll we'll talk about afterward. Cool. Okay. Um, but I feel like I sort of went off on a tangent. You were asking specifically about the Hollywood trajectory. Yeah. Uh, so from 25 to 30, early 30s was the partying was happening simultaneously as a spirituality and then it faded away as you became more and more spiritually realized and you wanted to prioritize the meditation yeah yeah okay cool cool yeah i just realized that yeah this was a better bet (laughs) yeah a more sustainable journey yeah Um, and was going to heal a lot of the transgenerational trauma as well as yeah well that that was the hope and still is Uh, i think i've i've managed to unwind a lot of that um but it's through meditation and and therapy and and friendships Um, totally yeah and becoming more of a ninja in general spirituality gives you that ninja jedi ability like we were saying with that pause or that gap or to just see these sort of levels of consciousness where people are this contracted egoic energy that's separate, that's finite biological versus those that recognize themselves as this eternal Buddha, this awakened Mm. one Mm -hmm. that 
is just butterfly affecting out like Sahaja Samadhi, this meditative consciousness in their daily activities. Mm. And you can just feel that resonance and Mm -hmm. it's so juicy and peaceful Mm. and happy. Totally. And I I like to say in my meditation classes and especially at the end of my yoga classes in, in Shavasana, I say, so may this practice bring you joy and vitality and peace, but so much more than that. And maybe far more importantly, may it radiate out, spill, shine out from you and into the world to light up the network around you so that everyone you meet and everyone they meet is illuminated by it. Uh, this is not just... Perfect. yeah, That's it's, perfect. Um, that's the bodhisattva path. Yes. That's That's what that whole thing is about that we're practicing not only for ourselves but but for everyone that we care about and yep. and for the extended network which which extends far beyond what we can exactly. probably imagine and so exactly it matters what we do exactly union yoga henosis or mysticism is union with what it's union with god or the absolute And as you do that practice of rather than like in the parable of the prodigal son, where you seek externally for happiness in the Maya, in the illusion, in the dream, rather you turn inward because that intoxication is not going to be the happiness or the peace that is eternal. You turn inward and you recognize the diamond necklace of consciousness of awareness that is already around your neck, as Rumi said, that is refracting the unique source light. It's an eternal source light in these dreams. And that diamond around your neck is your unique expression, like we were saying with this childlike analogy of the eye. The pupil is the shared observer, the shared witness among all of us. And the iris... Just like here, you have this different beautiful colored iris than mm. this unit does. Mm. And that is our unique expression. Mm. And that is so beautiful to be able to recognize that turn inward. Because that turn inward is like you described. It's the tantric path simultaneously where you weave your realizations into the social fabric. You no longer see atlas and blake as these two separate biological finite units but rather you see blake as the same god observer as you Mm. in its own unique creative expression so you would never hurt your Mm. own Mm -hmm. body your own being Mm -hmm. and so that's where it really helps out into the welfare of all that Mm -hmm. buddhahood Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I think what you're pointing to is very real. I think we probably might language it differently, but I mean, yeah, the way I would. Let's hear how you language it. I would love to hear that. I would say that there are certain states that you can access through meditation or that just occur spontaneously. And certainly um, with psychedelics, they tend to occur or MDMA or something like that. Um, And certainly in meditation where 
the boundary between interior and exterior self and other the the seeming boundary apparently collapses yeah and so that there's no sense of separation between self and other that that you and i are happening in the same field of awareness yes and that insight um or that angle on reality is extremely liberating it's it's it it and it does like as you say foster empathy and compassion yes Uh, i think that's i think that's true um uh, and the other piece that you touched on about <laughs> realizing that lasting fulfillment does not exist in any external thing that you might get uh, now yeah. that or, yeah. or, or imbibe <laughs> yeah yeah that is um, yep. a very very difficult pill to swallow yes so, uh, I mean, I'm still working on that. Uh, Especially when the cultural drum is going consume, consume, yeah. consume. Yeah. Happiness is external. And it's just drumming that in the educational infrastructure itself. Mm. Yeah. And so mm. you have this ignorant parenting that's propagating the curriculum of Maya to the children. Mm-hmm. And so from birth, you're getting the egoic onion layers that form versus if you look at like the Kogi shamans the that are the the mamas themselves and many other indigenous birth trajectories the onion layers of the egoic separate identity never form in the first place Mm. and that's one of the goals of conscious parenting Mm. is to have the child evolve in that way. So Mm. there's never this egoic formation that even happens in the first place. Hmm. Yeah. I think we we may have stumbled on our first philosophical disagreement. Perfect. Let's do it. I love these. (laughs) I love these. Let's do it. I'd love to hear your your perspective on it. Um, I think that... Well, here's how I would approach it. I think that in the West, in what we think of as uh, modernity or the developed world, there is this new invention, relatively new compared to history, right? Uh, human history called the individual, right? The individual <laughs> human being is like, this is a new idea. It's a new concept. It really got developed in, in, in the Enlightenment. And that the individual human being is the locus of rights, responsibilities, creativity, and, um, and experience. Um, so I think that was a good development. I would never trade it. But oh, what yeah. I would say, and this kind of goes to your point, is that when it goes wrong, when the, the pathological oh, side yeah. Yeah, yeah. of this emphasis on the individual, yeah we get the kinds of things that you're talking about, you know, unbearable separation, yeah, yeah. psychopathy, yes, yes. exaggerated agency. Yes, yes. Um, 
So but, it's the balance of the individual yeah, with the collective. But that at the we same would time. never want to trade it. I mean, if you Correct. go to it's tribal, it's the balance. It's the balance. Yeah, exactly. It's a balance because you do. It's it's always the simultaneity. This is the massive learning. It's always the simultaneity of that sort of non-dual. There is nothing to seek with the dualistic concession of there is a veilless veil to pierce and to undergo this union with God or the absolute. And so in the individual versus collective, it's to, again, this analogy of where you drain the dirty bathwater from right, each right. and then you uplift the crystal clear baby and then merge yeah, them. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's the, yeah. the Ken Wilber thing to transcend and include what the, what was good about the previous stage, which in this case was, community family cohesiveness connection song ritual etc like nothing wrong with any of that we don't want to get rid of it but then we added this idea yes the individual human being yes. gets to be original and unique and self-expressive exactly um and that's the unique that's the source light that refracts through the uniqueness of the diamond yeah. rather than the sameness and it's that's, the uniqueness. That, that's a it's beautiful. To say, but that is a Western uh, it's, innovation. It's very much like last five hundred years yeah, have been yeah, exactly. promulgating that, and yeah. it's and again, that's where we do the draining of the dirty bathwater, yet uplifting mm -hmm. the clean baby from both the collective and the individual, and merging that into one. Yeah, because yeah. we each have the diamond or the jewel around our necks, and yet the uniqueness of the diamond slash the jewel is the creative expression of the individual and it's yeah. so beautiful yeah yeah and it can get really off track right yeah like if you if you think that you're only an individual and they are not also a member of the human commons yes and also um, a member of various groups uh, a family a. uh uh, a neighborhood, a, a a gym, a book club, a nation, uh, etc. Then that you have rights and responsibilities within each of those contexts, and that you're none of those things. <laughs> that you're a radically centerless field of awareness, a la Rumi, right? Simultaneously, I am, yeah. I am. What does he say? I am. Uh, this, he says, first, last, inner, outer, only this breath, breathing, human being. Yeah. Uh, be beyond all of those small identities, we are this radical, yep. centerless field. Yep. And so if we, can, if we can keep all of those in mind. Exactly. Simultaneity. Yeah. Yep. yep. Individual. I am a human being. I'm my own person. I'm Blake. There's no one else like me. I have my own dreams and aspirations and biography and needs and so on. And my own unique creativity. And I'm identical in a sense to every other human being. Like exactly. We share the same firmware. Exactly. And there's a, there's a brotherhood and sisterhood there. Yes. And I'm a member. Yes. Of all these different groups. Yep. I mean, racially, religiously, uh, nationally, and 
so on and so forth. Planetarily. Yeah. And I'm none of those things. Yep. If we can remember those four things, yeah. we're pretty good. Yeah. We're not going to get too off track. Exactly. And that's sort of what we were saying earlier. It's good that we made this clarity is that it's not so much about the curricula of conscious parenting being around solely the God realization. It's also around the creative entrepreneurial actualization at the same time. I love that. Yeah. 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 That's so Perfect. important. It's so important. Perfect. I think that's absolutely critical because when, yeah, when teachers teach all the meditation stuff and the going in and the interior illumination stuff and fail to mention that, oh yeah, by the way, you also have to figure out what you're going to do in your life, yes. how you're going to make a living, how you're going to um, unfold yourself into the world in a meaningful way. Perfect. That's a real problem. Perfect. And I love what Jordan Peterson said. I was just thinking that he and Tony Robbins and Gary yeah. Vaynerchuk. Yeah, those kind of guys. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, Peterson's even more complex, but well, I, I haven't read a ton of Tony Robbins, but he said, he said, you don't unfold your, I'm paraphrasing, your creative expression, what you have to give. If you don't give what you have to give to the world, then there will be, there will forever be a hole in the fabric of the universe in the exact shape of your soul. Mm-hmm. I thought that was beautiful. Yeah. Because the world needs us. And that's funny in the simultaneity. It's both the non-dual tradition will say that that exact phenomenon never happens while the dualistic concession will say that that phenomena does happen. So within this Indra's net of these interconnected and interreflective jewels or diamonds that are around each of our necks, it is both simultaneously impossible for you to not actualize while mm-hmm. it's also possible in the dualistic concession for you to not actualize. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the interesting simultaneity of the non-dual with the dual at the same time because Mm. that's why within the dualistic concession when you look at all the self-actualization literature that that is what is pointing towards the optimization and the efficiencies of the creative manifestation of the unique jewel Mm. to express itself in the dream Mm. is which is the, 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 being able to recognize all is what does that? Did it follow your thought? All it of follows different... on your thought that you said a bit ago, which is that we are all of the layers. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So we're the layer of the finite biological creature, which is the most sort of concession And then the next layer up is something like the dualistic concession that the finite biological creature has something to seek. It has something to find. It has something to enlighten itself with. And then it finds that diamond necklace of consciousness of awareness that was already around its neck. And it recognizes, this is the God realized state, when it recognizes the source light that refracts through its unique jewel or diamond that then it expresses itself in a way that is 
more realized to the true nature of existence. And then there's one more sort of layer beyond that, which is the both it's beyond samsara and nirvana. It's beyond the cycle of birth and death mm. and beyond being blown out. And it's beyond the dreamed creation designs. It's beyond all that is. It is the absolute, the ineffable, which even rejects the observer. It rejects even the God consciousness state. Mm. And so there's all of the simultaneity across these layers and that being the truth. Yet, that being the ultimate truth, yet we have to recognize that the spiritual truth is the forever truth. Mm. Yet the empirical truth is the truth for now in mm. the creation design that this one is. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we've been sort of playing with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow, there's a lot there. Um, yeah, I have some things I could say about that. Also curious where you want to go next. And I think I have to take a quick break. Is that for, Can you hold yeah, it down for, for just a second? Restroom stuff? Yeah. Okay, sorry. yeah. I will Your hold it down. going through. I, yeah, exactly. I will hold it down. Totally. Right. I'll hold down the fort. Yeah. Right. Man. I love it. I love it. So we are now entering into a brief monologue based on what we've been talking about with Blake. I really appreciate where Blake and I have gotten with simultaneity. That by far seems to be the key. True simultaneity across all of these layers is what is ultimate truth. To truly at an embodied level recognize that simultaneity across the layers is what is at the most truest. That's it. So true simultaneity is most true across all of those layers at the same time. If you can see the rings, that are ever expanding and relaxing into that, you will see the finite physical biological creature that then goes outward one ring into the mind. Perfect timing. Come on back on. Yeah, I'm really glad that we had the restroom break. That was solid oh, because now it's going to enable the smoothness 
you know, it's a very important f- uh, aspect to the physicalism side of things. Yeah, exactly. So we were we were sharing how basically the true simultaneity that we've gotten to is the essence of what is the ultimate truth. So in a sense, it's the ability to hold that physical at the same time as we hold the mind. And this is sort of what Rumi was saying with the relax into ever expanding rings. And in the sense, you have that physical, and then you have the mind, which is a little more subtle. And then you sort of get into that eternal style of awareness or consciousness that you recognize. And then you relax even one more layer beyond that and in a sense reject that last thorn of even the observer or the witness into what is the ineffable absolute. And there are all of these different ways to describe this, but the general idea is that if you can hold all of that simultaneously and recognize that each one of these 8 billion units on this creation design are undergoing a different unique process of their unit being on a spectrum of what we just described as those layers. That is what Wadat al-Wujud means regarding the unity of all finding, the unity of all of these individual agents and their processes that they're undergoing Mm -hmm. across all of these layers. And so it's not ever an either this or that but it's always this and that it's the yin and the yang that are in one taijitsu that are a non-dual with the dualistic concession as one Mm -hmm. in the collective and the individual and all of these breakdowns it's the simultaneity that we've recognized is so key yeah, I would call that integral. Um, An integral uh, is another beautiful way to put it. Yes. Yeah, that uh, exactly. you don't have to. Yeah, you don't have to either or it. You don't have to exclude any stage or aspect of your being. That we, we we're we're both and. Um, uh, I guess for me, one of the things that's changed in the last few years is that I no longer really think that the states of awareness that I access in meditation or um, or that we read descriptions of uh, are necessarily uh, um, descriptions of ultimate reality or something like that, that, that they are extremely interesting, compelling, and potentially very useful and, uh, valuable on their own terms states. And that that's it. And I think that might, that's a difference I think in the way that you and I language. And I think, think about these experiences, at least that's my impression um, I don't, unless you're speaking poetically, metaphorically, I don't really think, I don't think there's evidence that meditative states, um, uh, give access to truths about the ultimate nature of reality necessarily. They may give access to, to truths about 
how my own mind works Mm -hmm. and how I feel about things and how my perceptual apparatus does its thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But beyond that, I think Mm. the claims are interesting a bit overstated and that that matters because the one of the upshots of that and this is really under the um, I influenced heavily by Julian Walker's thinking in this way um, abuses occur when teachers feel empowered to make grand grand claims about the nature of reality because they're good at meditating that can get into tricky territory totally. per- there's a lot of perverse incentives there for sure yeah, and that's well put- why and that's why you can never shed fully the unit because the conditioning of it is how it the it conditions its understanding of what is absolute or god realization etc and so this this the beautiful similarity i feel is just in slightly different phrasings which goes something like this that there is no way for us within maya or the illusion or the dream or this physicalism this creation design for us to know ultimate reality it's just ineffable Mm. and that's sort of the non-dual and then the dualistic concession goes something like well actually there are people at the mountaintop and the less perverse incentives that they have at the mountaintop the better Mm. And that they act as a vortex in a sense because they've done the work across these paths which enables them to have as close as possible to the ineffable anchored within their essence which then acts as that vortex of pulling other people up towards that imperturbable peace and causeless joy that just butterfly effects Mm -hmm. out. So that so that sounds similar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't think we're far off at all. Yeah. Um the you you can ha- have all kinds of really really profound and useful experiences like like cessation, let's say, in the Buddhist in the Theravada tradition, the the sudden blinking out of consciousness itself. And then when when you come back online, so to speak, you're experiencing things as if in a completely pure state of compassion and in the moment um, consciousness of what's arising. Beautiful. Which is a beautiful and really energizing experience. And you don't have to... Mm, uh, unpack that in a way that makes claims about objective external reality based on that like let's let's look to science for those uh, to validate those kinds of claims so that, that that's the the distinction that i make and the scientific analysis of these more spiritual and intuitive in a sense leaps of faith that happen are both 
quite difficult right now for science, yet it is creeping more and more into its domain, which is exciting. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah, a lot of sciencey people are, and not all of them, but 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 some science-minded, rational type people tend to be closed off to um, this whole domain of of you know trying to access altered states interior states of you know insight or reverie or bliss or whatever um because well it just sounds like so much woo right and that's why i think that it's up to people like us to start to think really precisely about these things yeah. and language it yep carefully yeah so that we don't scare away the science people and this we is need them correct and this is where i would say things like where you take things like the physicalism story of the big bang mm-hmm. and where you add a pair of eyeballs as consciousness or awareness to that point and then you click the play button and then scrub the timeline like in a video all the way to 13.8 billion years later aka right now Mm -hmm. and then you just see that there's one consciousness or one awareness or one observer or one witness which is in fact god that has been in many ways misinterpreted dogmatically and fundamentally, which is why rational people sometimes Mm -hmm. get triggered. Mm -hmm. But then that one observer, witness, God, consciousness, awareness is what is shared amongst all 8 billion of us. That's the pupil. That's the pupil. Whereas the iris is the Mm. unique expression Mm. of that. Mm -hmm. And so now you get more and more scientific people that go, hmm, cool that could mm-hmm. could be something interesting to explore and understand better mm-hmm. and then you just give them even more of these kind of most fundamental and simple explain like i'm five analogies mm where we take something like the so we're going to have we're going to have we're going to have Blake over here on this side and we're going to have Atlas over here on this side so Blake and Atlas are from the big bang right even from a scientific perspective true enough this is the blank awareness or the blank consciousness and you can tell that it's the same it's the blank awareness or the blank consciousness and then guess what happens the unique coloration Mm. so blake gets this walter russell art (laughs) and i get the walter russell poet's code of ethics so you get this visual artistic one and i get this words one Mm. And so when you look back again, it is the blank awareness or the blank consciousness that is being eternally colored 
by the experience of the unique iris. So the pupil being colored by the unique iris eternally. And so there's these very explain like I'm five childlike ways to get even. That's why Sir Roger Penrose, who won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2020, has a cyclic cosmology. Because there's just, there's nothing else that even scientifically makes sense mm. to just say that, ah, yeah, this is it. Big Bang, 13.8 billion years later, this physicalism, that's all that is, done. Nothing before, nothing after, done. Mm. That's what this is. It makes no sense. Mm. Recursion is everywhere, a.k.a. the procedure calls upon itself. If you look at a oak tree that drops an acorn that then makes more oak trees, or if you look at humans that go from two into a union where the sperm and the egg make another child that's birthed into the world that then goes on to make a union with another that then births a child into the world, that's recursion. So why would realities not be cyclic themselves? Mm. It's absurd to think that, that this is, that God or awareness or consciousness is finite. But in the sense of simultaneity, we recognize that this expression is unique to the extent at which the expression itself is experienced via the dream, which is a, quote, finite Blake and Atlas, and yet it is also simultaneously the eternity. Hmm. And so that's the simultaneity. What do you think of these sort of explain like I'm five analogies? How do these sort of resonate with you? Well, I like it. No, I mean, I, I, it definitely helped me to understand what you're saying. Cool, cool. From what I understand, what you're describing is... I think what it's called, if you wanted to um, label it in terms of its philosophical school, is panpsychism. I think that's what they're calling it. Uh, that is different from emergentism. That the idea of emergentism claims that consciousness must have emerged as a function or a, an effect of certain neurobiological processes in physical brains and nervous systems that it must have somehow emerged into existence with new and emergent properties um, called consciousness, as, but, but as, as an effect of physical processes. Whereas panpsychism claims, which I think is what you're doing, that, that consciousness was at least in some way here all along that they call it prehension. They, they posit um, a kind of proto or very primitive consciousness. They call it prehension. They say it's a kind of um, yearning or aspiration to become, which is loaded in, baked into the very primordial fabric of existence itself. And these two camps will go at it. Um, and look, I, you know, I have been... Um, Whereas simultaneity would say potentially something like all of it is integral. Hmm. Whereas when you dream at night, when you're sleeping, 
when you simulate that dreamed reality and you immerse yourself in the first person, could you have that dreamed reality without a first person observer or a witness? Could you have that? Would it be possible to have that without a dream? If you couldn't immerse yourself in it in right. first person. No, you need you need some kind of subjectivity, something that it's like to be you in order to have any experience at all. And then the next question would be, is there any separation between the observer and its, quote, dreamed environment? Or is it all one dreamed simulation? Hmm. Well, I think for me what comes up there is that there are states in which the environment and the observer merge or like i was saying the, the the seeming separation between them collapses and there's a kind of unitive experience of feeling deeply connected to your surroundings and that can be really meaningful um but even as that's happening in the moment that that's happening if you were observing a meditator from the outside who was in that state I mean, obviously, there would still be a boundary of a sort between him or her and the external environment, namely their skin, right? So sure. we have to be careful about Simultaneity. how sure. we're using these yeah, yeah. sort of poetically evocative terms. Yeah, yeah. yeah, simultaneity is key here, or integrality. So even though the... In the most non-dual sense, the dreamed environment in the dream is not separate from the observer. At the same time as in the dualistic concession, you can say that you as the first person observer in the dreamed environment are separate from the other dreamed characters in that environment that you're engaging with or interacting with or the trees or the houses or the objects mm -hmm. within it as well. And then that same as above, so below applies here as well. We can think about this in many ways like God's dream and one of many of the creation design dreams and that as much as we want to both say that there is that pupil of that non-dual as well as the iris of the unique individuation it's the simultaneity the integrality in the sense of emergentism and physicalism or free will and determinism, or as we were saying earlier, this conservatism versus liberalism or the collectivism versus <laughs> the individuality. It's like, how many more of these dualistic juxtapositions do we have to go through, which we've already went through ever since thousands of years ago when we created even across the planet, the Taijitu, the yin yang across different traditions they put the monism and the dualism in one symbol because they just wanted to make it that clear mm. yeah that's the the taiki the yin yang symbol yeah yeah an amazing symbol yeah no i think yeah there's wow there's a lot there um i mean i was uh I think by temperament, I am the most romantic, the most sort of mystical, schmistical that you can get. Um, 
And I've actually had to be dragged kicking and screaming by a couple of key figures, teachers, into what I think of as a more rational worldview. I didn't want to think this way because I worried that it would spoil the mystery, the, the beauty, the awe. The, um, and I, I have actually found that it didn't. Um, I, I really do think differently than I used to. Um, but I think that ultimately what I saw and w what was so actually heart-wrenching about that shift, and I guess I'm, I'm riffing on what you just said, but taking it down to the personal uh, or, you know, yeah. Uh, the, how how does the the philosophical stuff relate to the personal? Mm -hmm. uh, this this shift happened for me when I noticed in meditation and in therapy and in conversation. So all these processes of self reflection and inquiry and study that I was clinging to certain ideas that sounded really exciting yeah. and really yeah. intoxicating totally because I needed them yeah. because without them I felt much more vulnerable and exposed to mm. the unresolved mm. wounds mm -hmm. of my past mm -hmm. and that, that and in some sense they were a refuge mm -hmm. from suffering because they were really sweet really beautiful yeah. hangouts yeah and then when i saw that and i saw it just starkly i was like wow that is what you are doing you don't believe these things because it makes sense or because you've seen evidence you believe it because you want to because it feels good yeah and everything collapsed boom yeah. and it was like a you know it was like like they talk about it, you know like a in the Bible, like a crisis of faith, mm -hmm. you know, and I, th I felt like I was losing my, my treasures or, you know, like my, my compass. And actually on the other side of it, I just feel freer and the world is just as fun, just as interesting. Um, but you know, you talk about physicalism and, um, uh, um, uh, what is it that you call it? Uh, like the more spiritual angle on reality versus physicalism. We can just say consciousness and physicalism or spirituality and science, which are, again, just a dualistic concession for what is non-dual, which is not two. So it's a synthesis of both of those. Yeah. What, what you just said a moment ago is really important. And the way that I would potentially hit a ball back to that would it be something along the lines of, both the first realization of what could be considered an ultimate truth within that integral, as we've been talking about, would be that the ineffable cannot have descriptors or attributes attached to it. Mm. So first of all, there's absolutely nothing to say. Mm. That's it. Done. There's nothing to say. First point. Second point is that literally the coolest thing to do is to try and use symbols to describe the absolute. There's nothing more fun to do. For me, this unique expression mm. is 
finding that that is the coolest thing to do. Mm. Now, there are many other unique expressions that are choosing to pursue Maya, the intoxications of the illusion, which is totally cool. That's the unique expression Mm. of it. So that's the integral perspective. Mm. Yet at the same time, the dualistic concession is for those that want to recognize the diamond necklace around their neck to recognize God realization that there is this path up this mountain, the pathless path, and that the tennis, if you will, that is closest to the ineffable, so the exchange of symbols that are as close as you can, again, the Saguna Brahman, so we're adding attributes to what is the Nirguna Brahman or the attributeless absolute. And so we're adding symbols as much as we can to get closest and closest Mm -hmm. to what that is and it's super fun to do and we recognize that we are doing that we Mm -hmm. recognize we're doing that and then fred davis was recently on our show who's a great non-dual teacher and he says that be very vigilant to never make it a personality teaching Mm. and that's sort of what you were targeting a Mm -hmm. moment ago you don't want to ever make it a personality teaching when you say things like the essence of the absolute is yes attributeless mm-hmm. and then the next expression of it is the creativity or the anarchy or the lila the divine play mm. right so as close as we can say that yeah that's pretty close but we're not making it a personality teaching where it's like okay now we're gonna charge you a thousand dollars to attend this retreat and we're mm-hmm. gonna tell you the ultimate truth. Yay. Yeah. No. No, that we need to grow out of that. Exactly. We really do, because it's the problem with it is that when people set themselves up like that as some kind of um uh, infallible spiritual authority, there is a market for it precisely because there are a lot of wounded, vulnerable, impressionable gullible people out there who in need a new parent who seems they need they need some parental authority figure to project their idealization needs on onto that they didn't get completed in childhood so that they can live out this kind of old narcissistic need for validation and to be seen and to be uh, told what to do this is we've seen this over and over in the west with with um actually with what we were just talking about a moment ago which is people like jordan peterson in a sense you can even in a sense say that in the dualistic concession that there are plenty of people that are looking for a parental style figure to pass along some of these traditional timeless wisdoms that then enable them to more optimally recognize their God realization as well as the unique expression. So there is in the dualistic concession some sort of a market in a sense for awakening, but to not be perverse about it. That's the key, Mm -hmm. whether it be Tony Robbins or Jordan Peterson or Gary Vaynerchuk or any of the teachings of Rupert Spira or Bentinho Massaro or any of the Fred Davises or the ones that are alive today that are doing the teachings to just not be perverse about it, which Mm -hmm. when you get to those states, usually you are not perverse about it. Well, like, I mean, I think Shinzen is pretty responsible. Shinzen's pretty responsible. Shinzen Young in the way that he talks about things i 
I remember I mean, two things that he has said uh, that really moved me. Um, one time we were, I went to a talk of his with George, and George is like a, you know, flat out Buddhist atheist, rational period. And at that time, I was more of like a new age believer. And so we go to this Shinzen talk, the great meditation teacher, and I'm sitting there with George, and Shinzen keeps using this word, source, yep. like with a capital S. Yep. Then you return to your spiritual source. Yep. Um, this is the path, the direct path to source. Yep. And I was like, well, what, is, what does he mean by that? Is, yep. it, is he talking about... Uh, you know, an objectively, ontologically real, like divine source, like a god, or, or or is he just using this word poetically, metaphorically, to allude to an experience that you have in meditation? So I raised my hand, and I asked him that, and I really wanted him to say the former. I really wanted him to say, "Oh no, you are contacting source, a true, and, and you know." real as anything else spiritual source that's you know i wanted him to validate essentially what i now think of as my fundamentalist uh belief structure and he said he disappointed me profoundly he mm -hmm. said oh no definitely the latter i'm just speaking poetically i would never waste my time or yours speculating about objective reality or anything like that this is not my area of expertise uh, so that was like devastating and it took me several years to sort it out and liberating at the same yeah time. no it was yeah. it is ultimately it's liberating because then you don't have to put too much on your experiences they're just experiences they mean what they mean on their own terms yep and yep. they're incredibly rich incredibly significant but you don't have to gild the lily as my yeah. friend uh, julian walker says and then the other story it's really briefly shinzen said that bears on what we're talking about he said there have been a lot of million dollar ideas in the history of our species there's even been a few billion dollar ideas, but there's only one trillion dollar idea. <laughs> and it is the marriage of science and spirituality. And that's exactly what we've been promulgating on the show over the last year is that exact thing which is the synthesis of science and spirituality. They nice. are the they are the two if you in the dualistic concession you separate them into two separate things and then you say that they are the two greatest driving forces of where we're at today. Mm -hmm. Boom, done. Got it. And then the synthesis of the two where you drain the dirty bathwater from each, because I do agree with you, there's dirty bathwater in dogmas and fundamentalism in spirituality. And when someone is trying to peddle you uh, snake oil, that science can come in and say, uh, that's not what it actually does. Mm -hmm. Whereas on the scientific side, the perverse incentives and the dirty bathwater are like what we saw with the dropping of the nuclear bombs onto Hiroshima and Nagasaki when you 
you know, when you wake up spiritually, you recognize that our science should not be serving the 13,000 nuclear bombs on the planet and biowarfare and perverse artificial general intelligence incentives and mind control via Neuralink and stuff like that. But when you wake up spiritually, it enables you morally to be able to architect the science, technology, and engineering with a high degree of ethics and morality, the mm -hmm. highest degree of those, which then prevent perverse incentives from formulating downstream. So I really appreciate that story mm -hmm. from Shenzhen Young because I truly agree that the trillion dollar idea is that. And also within the first story, that's why we use this sort of flat mountain idea because it pretty much it pretty much sums it up in a way that mm. sort of resonates in in the way that um, most people can generally understand it so we have in this in this flat mountain we have both the flatness which is the non-duality which is what you expressed with there is no ultimate it's ineffable done mm. it just is that's it okay cool then you have the mountain the mountain is the dualistic concession so it's to say that if you are baked into maya intoxicated by it and you have this seeking impulse like a gps that's going like bum 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 like a callback in a sense like in the parable of the prodigal son to be called back to your source or to be called back to consciousness or awareness pure by itself without the coloration of experience of maya to that god realization to that ineffable that absolute then you have this mountain with all of these different paths and these different paths are like the planetary mystic traditions they are like the books and the aphorisms and the meditation retreats and all of these types of things that exist in order for you to undergo said process and mm -hmm. so that's why that non-dual plus dualistic concession simultaneously or integrally it sort of solves the a majority of the both bickerings mm -hmm. and discrepancies and even the greatest games of tennis that are played at the closest levels to the ineffable. And so that's why, you know, one of our main roles on the, not only on the program, but in general with this unique expression of what this unit is, is to visualize these things and to try and not say that this is the ultimate truth. It's mm -hmm. so dumb. It's dumb. But to say that, hey, hopefully this one is fairly close to what mm -hmm. you feel is that ineffable. And maybe it can help bring you value. Maybe mm -hmm. it can help bring you uh, an eradication of some of the suffering that you're experiencing towards a state of more well-being in that dualistic mountain. Yeah. Yeah. That, that here is a way of talking about subjective experience. Here is a way, a map of the territory of the interior that's yeah that's a that, that way of talking doesn't present any problems um it it's 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 helpful without being um so literal yeah. that it risks mistaking mistaking the map for 
a map of the interior for a description of you know reality writ large that, that's where people get into trouble with you know and and fall into literalist fundamentalist exactly thinking which leads to you know Violence. sectarianism yeah, yeah exactly yeah, exactly yeah. The wars where you have, you know, 100 plus million people that die in the 20th century, it really stems from the inability to be integral. Mm-hmm. And so the more integral and the more simultaneity that we have, the less violence, the that's why Ramana Maharshi said that the greatest service that you can render the world is to God realize. Hmm. Ultimately, what that does is it leads to effortless action in your daily activities. Like Lao Tzu said, Wu Wei, where everything you do downstream is from the absolute highest morality because you recognize that Blake is the same being that I am. Well, again, when the simultaneity, you would recognize them as individual units and as well as the same being at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so it's all about that. Yet it's also about somebody that is in the intoxication of Maya that is pursuing a Lamborghini right now. Mm -hmm. It's also that. And that's the richness of what the dream is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so there's no dogma. There's no fundamentalism. And that's why you have these... You have these other, uh, as we've sort of, you know, you you really you really liked this one, yeah, and it is very much resonant with what you have previously explored yourself as well. So you yeah. have in the bottom right corner the spiral dynamics, which we're very familiar with, mm-hmm. which is a really strong map. Mm-hmm. Claire Graves, Chris Cowan, Don Beck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I got into it through Ken, Ken Wilber. Wilber. Exactly, Ken they Wilber. They him of bastardizing it, but not that's where I first heard of it. Exactly, not at all. That's mm-hmm. where I first heard of it too, and then mm-hmm. it led me to Claire Graves and Don Beck and Chris Cowan, mm-hmm. and I was looking them up in more detail, and they're brilliant as yeah, well. Yeah, it's really cool it's stuff. It's so good. And so then that's in the bottom right corner as a great map, and then the bottom left corner is a great map of the levels of consciousness by David Hawkins, who does a great job at it. And in the top right is the law of one. And that's an incredible PhD in metaphysics in its own sense as well. But the idea is that in the top left is just this fun, infinite, absolute, beautiful image. And so the idea is that these are maps. What we showed you here is a map. What we showed you with Flat Mountain is a map. But we are not saying it is the ineffable territory. That's it. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction to make and to make it explicit to people um over and over because you know like there's two kinds of people in the world people who understand (laughs) metaphors and people who don't (laughs) and there's a lot of the second kind you know that when you start talking in a certain way they assume that you mean this literally um when you say i I blinked out of existence during my meditation. They think that you mean that you literally <laughs> disappeared. But of course, that's not what you're saying at all. You just you, you had a discontinuity in your awareness. You suddenly had an experience of 
uh, of disappearing. But you know that you were sitting there the whole time. So that's just an example. But um, yep, yeah. And then and then, you know with this stage of development stuff, I guess for me the real what I've let go of is the idea of a conscious or proto-conscious telos, you know that word? Yeah. Teleology. Totally. That is animating the the movement from stage to stage. I think these these maps of stages of development are descriptions of what we see when we look at what what has occurred in in the development of an individual human being or in the development of a culture, this is the track that it seems to follow. Yeah. But that doesn't imply that there is some necessarily some, uh, conscious, uh, transcendent aspect that is guiding that, evolution toward something totally it's just what is happening that's exactly and that's why the term metaphysical anarchy has been one that's really resonated Mm. in that in that regard i like that i like that see i think that's the track i'm on i might be a metaphysical anarchist yeah because ultimately that's what the expression at the most non-dual layer is it's a metaphysical anarchy and then in the dualistic concession you have all of these ideas of these levels of consciousness and these densities of of the maps all of these maps the spiral dynamics all of this type of stuff or as you were indicating a moment ago there's the people that say that ah it's leela it's the divine play or the cosmic play or it's the source is creative or the ineffable is creative or the ineffable is already perfect or already whole or any descriptor basically yeah even anarchy in itself is still a descriptor totally but totally it's the one that is in a sense the least of a descriptor mm-hmm. in a sense mm-hmm. it's yeah. the most attributeless descriptor yeah. it's also a metaphor but it's it's maybe a little Adhering a little closer, more closely to what's actually going on. Although Dance of Leela is a beautiful image for understanding certain aspects of reality if it's understood as poetry, right? Yeah. I mean, it's poetry. It's not, there's no literal. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's. Yeah, <laughs> correct. Correct. This, this would be another sort of synthesis of what we just uh, talked about a moment ago, which is that. In this most highest sense, we can think about these maps, like we were just showing you a moment ago, as the best possible games of tennis that we're playing around the ineffable absolute. Mm -hmm. But we recognize that they're just maps, the highest maps. Mm -hmm. But it's, again, it's not... It is not the ineffable territory itself. Mm-hmm. Even the word anarchy itself is the potentially closest attribute we can ascribe to it, but it is still not the ineffable territory. And by doing these top two things, what happens is you recognize that there is the most optimal is when there's no dogma, there's no perverse incentives around these. 
So that's just what sort of came up as an exegesis mm -hmm. for me. I was drawing out, drawing out the salience of our conversation. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. that's good. I'm on board with that. Cool, cool. Yeah, that's ultimately what we do on the program is we aim to, we aim to, um, to get as, as uh, strong of an exegesis out. We try and mm -hmm. draw out as much of the salience in these highest games of tennis mm -hmm. around the ineffable, and we try and visualize them, which is why we have these great maps of these seven densities, these levels of consciousness, the spiral dynamics. They're the maps that are for now in a sense closest but we recognize they are not the ineffable absolute we recognize we are not going to be charging people a thousand dollars to attend retreats for people to come and to learn about these most direct transmissions that's yeah. why the theravada buddhism meditation retreats that's why they via the most direct conservative teachings of buddha and thank goodness for sm goenka and for the entirety of the organization at large for preserving it but that's why they are free the 10-day mm. meditation retreats are free they're donation based afterwards if you had a profound experience you can make a donation right and that's where you retain in a sense in many ways the core ethos of what is non-duality or the ineffable because the moment that you begin, in a sense, charging for it, and this is what I've had a struggle with with our channel as well, is mm. because around two years ago, we launched the Patreon and the cryptocurrency donations and the PayPal mm. donations and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And even up until just yesterday, we launched what is like the join button at the bottom of the mm -hmm. YouTube right underneath of the like button where people can join into the membership program or the exclusive perks and stuff and i've always had a struggle with this because all of our content should be absolutely free always period that's the ethic that we've had since 2017 since inception mm. yet at the same time we're recognizing that it's beautiful for people that want additional value if they want a private community group chat or if they want exclusive videos or if they want the their name etched into the bio of the video and whatnot or if they want the to be able to ask our guests the interviewees questions that to provide these things of value money can be seen as just energy as in it is the energetic transmission from the guests from the viewers to the show that then makes it so that we can funnel more energy, money, mm -hmm. into the literal development of the further content. So when you give a donation at the end of the Theravada Buddhism meditation retreat, all you're doing is you're funneling the further purchase of the food and the upgrade of the, the not only the Dhamma Hall, but also potentially the Pagoda, which is fantastic mm -hmm. if you have those individual cell units mm -hmm. and stuff, the food that they serve for free as well. So this is the type of stuff to think about is the money acts as a mechanism to energetically enhance the, the creative expression. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. To, to facilitate the Dharma, the, the, the sharing of these important things. I think, I guess the only thing I would add to that is that I think 
for spiritual types and artistic types, there does seem to be a tendency to have a kind of bias against capitalism, commerce, market economies, uh, which I, I, you know, you know, leave it up to the listener to decide or whatever you think. But the more I've learned about history and economics, which is just enough to know that I hardly know anything, the more I think that there is dignity in market transactions and that we don't necessarily have to think of them as demeaning or degrading to what we're offering that actually totally. th th this this in some sense of, of course uh, capitalist um, relationships can become corrupted and and uh, exaggerated and uh, left unregulated people can get hurt and all of these kinds of and, and, and exploited yes but fundamentally I think there's a pretty good idea there that that I have something of value to offer. Totally. And you might be willing to support me exactly. with this construct we've invented that's exactly. real in our minds exactly. called money. That's it. Um, and Spot that, on. That's basically a, a, a good Spot on. exchange. Yeah. Ultimately, it's going to be a synthesis where we drain the dirty bathwater from both capitalism and socialism and we uplift them both and merge them together where you have something like when you look at in 1906 we have the american antiquities act and so you have teddy roosevelt and john muir that go out to yosemite and they're like dude this shit is so fucking beautiful that we mm. know that if we leave this untouched and other sites like this around the u.s untouched that corporate entities are going to come and chop down all of these trees and mine all of this rock and there's going to be no beauty left mm -hmm. and so you make the american antiquities act you make mm -hmm. the national park system right or if you want a modern example you look at what happened with the sackler family and Purdue mm. and Purdue Pharma and the opioid epidemic. Yeah, what and, a horrible story. And so that's another perverse incentive that you can have in the capitalistic structure. But what you do is over time with the free market, with markets in general, what you do over time is you iron out the externalities that create these perverse incentives and you make them more and more in service to the well-being and prosperity of the entire totally. collective. Totally. Yeah. And so it's not but even without a, yeah. without hopefully <laughs> Um, heavy-handedly inserting the state into the doings of yeah, individual citizens. Exactly. So there's a really yeah, complicated fine. balance so to strike yeah, there. Exactly. Yeah, and that's what you know. That's what a lot of our politics. Exactly. That's is what basically about. our whole political system is about. That it's that the, argument. <laughs> in a sense, it can be summed up as the the liberals want in the United States want a more robust social fabric mm -hmm. and conservatives want a more robust individual mm -hmm. in a sense. Mm -hmm. And then there's of course the libertarian perspective as well. So there's and Donald Trump just yeah. wants a more robust Donald Trump. <laughs> and that's there, it. There were definitely <laughs> some fascinating um, geopolitical dynamics as well that emerged from the ability to see in a sense, what is the dirty bathwater of the USA 
and China? And mm. what is the uplifting of the good codes from each of them? I went to China in 2019 for partnership interviews for three weeks, mm. and I found the energy of the culture to be so incredible. Mm. And there is basically a massive propaganda machine that exists in China about the U.S. and a propaganda machine in the U.S. that exists about China mm -hmm. and also in Russia that exists about the U.S. and U.S. that exists about Russia and mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia, etc. But what happens when you go to Jeddah or to Riyadh or to Moscow or St. Petersburg or Beijing or Shanghai or when they come to New York City or Los Angeles mm -hmm. or San Francisco, what happens is a massive melting of xenophobia totally that's what happens yeah sweet people it's like we may have criticisms of their government but when you meet a chinese person or a russian person it's not like you know uh, they're just people <laughs> they're just like us yeah, uh, yeah. That, i mean that's you know like a, a very very elementary failure if people can't distinguish between um you know uh totalitarian government and the citizenry of the people who live in that country i mean it's like but but, but you do see that happening you know like and that's the dirty China bath had water. failures yeah. regarding the way they handled the virus and so certain kind of yeah. person in america hates chinese people i mean it, it makes about that's as ridiculous. much sense it makes no <laughs> sense know, at like, all it's like all of these on a geopolitical stage, all of these figures of the United Nations are going to have some dirty bathwater. They're going to have mm. some good ideas. But to be able to basically have the sorting algorithm functioning all the time. Mm. And that's what spirituality means in many ways is the word discernment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have discernment? That's what neti neti means. It's not this. It's mm. not that. It's not this cloud that comes and tells me you are this emotion of anger you are mm. that but to have the discernment to say no i'm not that what i am is the sky where the cloud is happening yeah yeah resolution power discrimination power yes exactly and that's that's what we did nuance. in nuance nuance exactly mm. Yeah, in 2018, I changed my middle name to Nuance. Um, did you really? Yeah, I did. I changed my middle name to Nuance. It was Alan Nuance Sakyan from 2018 to 2020. And then at the end of 2020, I dropped Alan Nuance and Sakyan, changed just to Atlas. And then I went through my Satori last month. Mm. And then that dropped even Atlas. <laughs> and now you're just... Now it just is. <laughs> it's hilarious. Nice. But if you say, if Blake's like, hey, Atlas, would you mind grabbing me a drink of water? You know, I'm not going to be like, Atlas doesn't exist. <laughs> you know, so you function through the simultaneity. Because you're of the making layers. the, what do you call it? The, the dual concession, the dual, yeah. dualist concession. Exactly. We make that dual mm -hmm. concession. Exactly. And that's why there are these crevices that are really important to mention because we we almost in a sense we like we completely forget that there are these crevices as you go up towards in the dualistic concession in the mountain you go up these paths towards this absolute and what happens is that you get to like the hikers on mount everest where there are these areas of fresh snowfall where you can't actually see this 50 foot crevice you fall in and you die mm -hmm. 
And what that means is if you're not following, like Buddha said, the middle path or the middle way, or like Ramana Maharshi said, Sahaja Samadhi, Mm -hmm. or like the tantric path, where you're basically not weaving your enlightened realizations into the social fabric itself, into your daily activities. Great. Great. Fantastic. I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's like you hear these stories of the great enlightened masters in India and and that, that, that they're in such a state of unitive bliss all the time. They can't do anything. They just sit there and they have these sort of disciples around them who bring them food and sort of like (laughs) put it in their mouth. And then every once in a while they get it together to like give a talk and it's like a great talk, but that's not what I want (laughs) for my life. I want to be flexible. I want to have a range of expression available to me, including like you say, showing up in the world. That's so essential. And I think, we're probably moving toward a close here, but this is exactly, just, yeah. Um, including your acting and producing, right? Your yeah, artistic exactly. expression. Because yeah. I think a lot of the people that are drawn to spirituality do so because they've been wounded, and what they want, and this is certainly the case for me in my story, is a space that tells them you don't have to engage with the world. Because one of the things that happens that breaks when people get really hurt is their capacity to connect, to connect in relationship and to connect with the world. And so if someone says, well, no, you don't have to do that. All you have to do is sit in this tastefully lit room with these beautiful Buddha statues and listen to me talk, you will stunt their, gr- their development as a human being. Those, you know, they, they have to face those wounds and move through them if they're going to be fully integrated and so uh that's just another way of explaining why i think it's so important that meditation teachers don't pretend that meditation on the cushion or in the meditation hall is the whole meal uh there's more to do there's you know the effortless action once one God realizes the Wu Wei that naturally channels through the unit into the expression of that unit in the social fabric. In the butterfly effect of the imperturbable peace and causeless joy into the family, the community, the world at large, and also all of the entrepreneurship and creativity with the planetary architectures that maximize well-being, prosperity, abundance, flourishing. Mm. That is it. Mm -hmm. That is it. Yeah. Good. Good. What a gorgeous convo on all fronts. Thank you. Blake, this has been our honor, our pleasure. We've loved having your flower blossom on <laughs> the program. You. The aroma has been delicious. <laughs> appreciate it. Appreciate you having me. It's a great Thank conversation. You. So awesome. And I'm yeah. really grateful you shared so much of your story with us. Grateful to Michael Holt for making the introduction. It was so spot on. So yeah. Spot oh, on. good. Good. It I'm was glad. so spot on. It was so good. And I love the way we hit the tennis ball back around as close as we could to that absolute, mm-hmm. to that ineffable. Mm-hmm. And, and we know that it's as close as we can. And we mm-hmm. know that it's not a dogmatic ultimate. Yeah. And I think yeah. by, not, by, by not having to be perfectly um, in alignment and in agreement all the time, we were able to actually get to zero in on shared truths uh, even exactly. more deeply. 
Exactly. One of the key things that's come up from the guests that come on the show is that by having not only a polymathic interlocutor and one with high emotional intelligence and spiritual intelligence, but one that's also has uh, an amount of disagreeableness on Mm -hmm. the big five in the personality Mm -hmm. traits is just enough. Exactly. I think it was Gertrude Stein who said, too much agreement spoils a chat. There you go. That's a good one. Yeah. It's a really Very good succinct. one. Super succinct. Yeah. I'm excited to re-listen and take some notes because there cool. were a bunch of good, the Shenzhen Young quote about the trillion dollar idea. Mm-hmm. These are concepts that I'm going to be adding into a lot of the images and visualizations that, Great. especially the Gertrude Stein. Yeah. Quote. Yeah. Too much agreement can spoil a spoils a chat spoils a chat and i'm i may be misattributing that quote it may not be gertrude stein uh, but it may be hemingway i don't it know it might be hemingway that's cool well we'll we'll uh we'll identify <laughs> yeah blake super grateful thank you for coming on the show You're welcome thank you yeah. thank you and thanks everybody for tuning in we love you so much thank you thank you for tuning in thank you. we would love to hear your thoughts about the show in the comments below let us know how you feel we'd love to hear from you about all of the cool topics that we've been discussing and also if it brought you value like the video subscribe if you haven't share it with other people that you feel like this would resonate with and also check out the links in the bio below as well so we have for you the We have the veniceyogi.com link for you to support Blake. We have his IMDb profile. We have his Instagram. Go and follow him there. And you can check out his Wikipedia as well, where his filmography is, as well as the television. Yeah, I'm going to be launching a a crowdsourcing thing in the next few weeks to produce my my play. It's just going to be like a, a play filmed in one location, like a movie. Um, so if you follow me on Instagram, then I will conscript you in that cause. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be a really amazing, um, creative exactly. work that we're, we're trying to, like we've been talking about unfold into the world. Uh, exactly. It's something that's a lot. We've put a lot into this play and it's exciting. Yeah. Great. The arsonist of Venice. Yeah, the arsonist of Venice. And so there will be a crowdfunding campaign with kind of like a, a video promotion for yeah. it. Style yeah, we've thing. shot a scene already and we're going to put that on the website. And Exciting. Yeah. That's the, that's the way to do it. And mm-hmm. to gain that support again, that energy, that fuel for it. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. That's all, folks. Thank you so much. We love you. Thank Infinite you. love. Thank you. Much love. Peace. Mm-hmm.